Welcome to ContenderCast, a global leadership and consumer industries entrepreneurship podcast centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now, here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. It's Justin Hahnemann on the ContenderCast. We're shining a light on bright ideas today, guys. You're going to love our conversation as we are talking to the acknowledged authority on evolutionary psychology and digital marketing. Yes, I know. You're already excited. Uh, Tim Ash is with us. Tim, it's so great having you on the podcast. (laughs) Great to be here, Justin. (laughs) Yeah, round two, right? Um, He's also the author of a really cool book called Unleash Your Primal Brain, Demystifying How We Think and Why We Act. I mean, like when I got the information um, from Tim on his background and some of his content, I was like, when can we schedule you? So I'm really excited that you're here. And I can't wait to dive in. So, Tim, let's start with this. So, share a little bit about your background. I know you did your your schooling in the world of computer engineering and cognitive science. So, it seems like it adds up to like what you're doing today. But talk about your path. Yeah. Well, okay. If you want to start back yes, really far, I was born in the former Soviet Union and emigrated here with with my family till uh, when I was eight years old. Uh, and I managed to stumble around uh, with my family in New York, Michigan, New Jersey. And then I got a full ride scholarship on the beach in La Jolla, California. And they have a nude beach next door to this top flight campus, 3000 miles from home in New Jersey. I'm like, I'm there. So I ended up in <laughs> San Diego. Amazing. I did my undergraduate there and it was a, com- a dual degree in computer engineering, as you mentioned, in cognitive science. And UCSD is a rocket ship of a, of a institution. They've been around only 60 years or so, and they're already rated in the top 25 in the world. So I stayed there for graduate school, was doing my PhD work in what would now be called deep learning or machine learning, totally. AI, that sort of thing. Totally. Um, and then just quit seven years into the PhD program to start my first business and go on the uh, entrepreneurial roller coaster. All right. So I have to stop you right there. First of all, my, as you know, or you may know, uh, my day job is in data and analytics. And I mean, the things you just threw out around machine learning and AI, and I mean, that's like hot right now. I mean, it's unbelievably oh, oh, yeah. so key, right? In our market today, it's evolved from, I mean, uh, to, to just understanding data. And now it's just become a, a big focus on how you use data. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, when I was working on it, this is like late 80s. Um, you know, <laughs> it wasn't I'm called analytics then, right? It wasn't called math. AI and machine learning then. It wasn't. All- yeah, well, we, we were working on the algorithm side. So how do you teach computers to learn by example, essentially? My specialty was neural networks. Wow. And so you need the algorithms to, to help them learn and you need huge data sets to learn on it. Lots and lots of examples. Well, Obviously, that was a problem in the 80s, no longer a problem with the internet age. We have massive data sets of everything. And so these things have now combined, and that's why artificial intelligence and machine learning are taking off. But I was working on the algorithm side back in the day. Wow, that's that's awesome. And what a hot space. Anyone listening that's thinking about where should they go in their career or, or where should they invest? I mean, this is the space and, and it's it's a long term um, opportunity, right? I mean, the, the data and, and analytics and reporting and BI space has been hot since the 80s and it will be hot years to come. Um, yeah. And, and by the right? way, you're absolutely right. My background was exactly preparing me perfectly for a career that didn't exist yet. So if you put <laughs> right. together the psychology and the measurable part, that's internet marketing. 
right? That's so true. It just wasn't, it didn't even exist though when I was going to school. And so I have had a great run. I've ran a couple of agencies. My last one, Site Tuners, which I'm currently not working on anymore. Uh, we created 1.2 billion in value for the Nestle's, wow. Google's, Facebook's, and Expedia's of the world uh, by applying measurable marketing to um, conversion rate optimization. That's really what we're known for. Wow, that's amazing. Um, how did you get into this? Got the analytics side, but how did you get into this world of wanting to understand how a consumer behaves or how they think? Like, Was that always part of the work you had done or was it something that evolved through the, 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 the agency work? Well, in, again, in the agency work, you're looking for, you're seeing, you're exposed to a lot of companies. You see what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, and so on. But uh, so you want to find some durable kind of strategies that work in all environments. And that was the neuromarketing. That was the, what are our unconscious biases? How do people really make decisions? How do you influence them? And so I'd say the majority of that 1.2 billion was based on I guess you'd say evolutionary psychology principles. So in a way, I've kind of come full circle. I studied cognitive science back in the day. I applied it to marketing. And now with this new book, I'm kind of trying to tell the world about how the brain really works and how people make decisions. I love that. And that's a perfect setup. I have one question, though, before we get there. One of the things that um, when I was doing my homework on you, um, you talk about is this whole idea of user-centered design. Talk about what that means and, and how that applies you know, with the data space and with understanding psychology. Yeah, well, this is, again, something that I I'm, was lucky enough to get in on the ground floor of. Uh, Don Norman, who's a, a pioneer in user-centered design. In fact, he literally wrote the book on it back in the 80s. He was a professor at UCSD. He was also an Apple fellow later, and now he's back at UCSD. But we actually use this textbook as our as our textbook for the course. It was called user-centered design. Wow. And this is again for almost 40 years ago now. And finally, people are like, oh yeah, maybe we should design systems for the intended user. Seems kind of... <laughs> that uh, seems like the basic, right? <laughs> like, yeah, like a good idea. <laughs> but you know what? Um, I think there's this kind of tug of war in companies. We're always thinking about our own megaphone. What do we project to the world? Our brand, yeah, what we want to say, our features, our benefits, all sure. this bullshit. And what's always <laughs> missing from the conversation is the needs of the visitors. And so, so I, I've, I've been trying to kind of push on that side of the balance scale and say, hey, pay attention to what people want. And if you align with that, that's how you actually make money for a company. Well, and the other thing that's awesome, and thank you for defining that for our audience. The other area that I wanted you to define was, you know, some of your early work in what was called conversion rate optimization or CRO, um, still important today. In fact, maybe even more important as so many companies have, have um, jumped into e-commerce, especially in 2020. But talk about what that means and how it plays into your, your story. Sure. Conversion rate optimization is also called landing page optimization. And it's fancy ways of saying, basically, how do you influence somebody to act once they get to your website. So regardless of how you get them there, what kind of tricks or tactics you're using, you have that zero moment of truth. They show up, they either trust you, or they feel motivated enough to make the decision and to act, or they don't. And so CRO, or conversion rate optimization, is increasing the percentage of your website visitors that take action. And that could be buying something, filling out a form, watching a video, or maybe picking up the phone and calling your company. Um, all of those are legitimate kind of response mechanisms, if you will. Uh, but we're just trying to influence more people to do it. So it's a mix of psychology, 
um, user interface design, copywriting, uh, visual design, and like a lot of neuromarketing and understanding how people subconsciously make decisions. I love that. And uh, a little side pitch for those listening that are like, man, I could really use that in my business. You can go buy the book, Landing Page Optimization, The Definitive Guide to Testing and Tuning for Conversions, the second edition on... uh Yeah, the one with the blue cover, not the the first edition. It's awesome, though, dude. I I mean, almost five star on Amazon, almost 100 ratings. That's pretty awesome. Um, Yeah, it's it's sold over 50,000 copies and been translated into six languages, one of which happens to be Russian. So it's really funny (laughs) reading my own book in Russian that I never wrote in Russian. And there's so many writers listening that are like, man, I've written a book and sold 100 copies or a couple hundred, but 50,000, that's, I mean, that's amazing. Um, And we could do a whole podcast on that and how to make that work or how that, how do you make that happen? But um, let's get to uh, the main event. I'm very curious to dive into Unleash Your Primal Brain. So talk about this book and like where did this come from? I, I believe it came from your experiences, but share some of the backstory on it. Yeah, well, again, I've always been interested in cognition and how people learn, how they think, uh, how to persuade them. And so that's been the thread that I applied to my marketing work at, at, when I ran Site Tuners, my agency, for almost 20 years. But um, I want this is almost coming full circle to telling other people about it because see, we created massive value for the, the Nestle's and Expedia's and, you know, uh, shutter stocks of the world and most of them behaved ethically they were using these neuromarketing principles in an ethical way but not all of them i mean companies use this stuff to data mine us to you know all their data scientists are basically trying to strip mine us for value for our attention to take money out of our wallets and divide us to create controversy and all of that stuff and so to me i wanted to level the playing field I want to, to stop bringing the proverbial knife to the gunfight. So I say, <laughs> you know, you're at a big disadvantage when these big companies or governments are manipulating you like this. So if you want to understand how your brain really works, you know, it's not the way you think. And this is what they're doing to you. Sure. Uh, I, I love that. And I mean, you so you've started to open it for open this idea for us. So one of the things you talk about are the commonalities that everybody has and that we all share. Talk about some of those and and some of the, the ways that, you know, we all kind of think. Yeah, so I, I know there are a lot of um, books about particular kinds of cultures or behavioral norms or languages or religions. Those are things that separate us, that we learn from our environment. What I'm talking about is more fundamental. It's what the 8 billion of us on Earth share. So in order to understand how our brain works, you have to retrace the whole evolutionary arc. There's stuff we picked up from insects. There's stuff we got from other mammals. And then there's some stuff at the very end of our evolution that makes us bizarrely and uniquely human and why we've taken over the whole damn planet. Uh, So to understand (laughs) that, sleep, memory, learning, culture, language, gender differences, uh, the chemistry of happiness, uh, all of that is, is what the book is about. And I wanted to digest it and make it accessible to the average person without any of the jargon or the BS that popular science books often bring to it. Well, I mean, and there's so much good content um, in this book. And I had a hard time like narrowing down um, like what some of the really good ideas would be to focus in on. So I just picked a couple and um, I, I'm just going to pick, I, I think what would be kind of fun is how about we just walk through some of those and you can share with our audience what they mean. How does that sound? 
Yeah, sounds perfect. All right, cool. So the first part of the book is called Foundations. I'll let you share what that means in a minute. But the, the very first chapter is called The Lie of Rationality. How about share with us what you mean by foundations and the elements in this part, and then let's jump into that first idea. Yeah, well, well let's talk about The Lie of Rationality. That's chapter one, literally, in the book. <laughs> um, and the, the Lie of Rationality is in Western thought we've had for a couple of thousand years, going back to people like Socrates, uh, the notion that our rational mind is what makes us unique and qualitatively better than other animals. And if we can only tame those raw emotions underneath and all be like Mr. Spock on Star Trek, that we'd all be better off. And that turns out is total bullshit. <laughs> that our irrational mind is the one that's running the show, the subconscious mind, the one that doesn't um, have consciousness or can't reason or doesn't use language. That's the part that's uh, actually the in the driver's seat. And so to think that we make decisions with our rational mind is ridiculous. In fact, we literally cannot make a decision without an emotional component. The rational mind gives us options. The emotional mind decides which of those are the best course of action. Wow, that's awesome. I love that. And what I also like that you then walk into, you know, talking about the evolution of the brain, which I think is fascinating. And then you talk about brain basics. So give us some brain basics. Well, uh, the human brain in particular is a very energy intensive system. Let's compare us to our kind of great ape cousins. If they, they use about 8% of their resting energy every day to power their brain, we use about a quarter. So that three pounds in your head is using up a quarter of your resting metabolism. Wow. And so we've had to make all kinds of weird adaptations uh, to our bodies in order to accommodate that. We have weaker bodies. We're physically weaker. So it doesn't take as much time to, or, or energy to maintain them. Uh, we also kind of keep the brain on standby. It's, it's on autopilot most of the time and the expensive parts of the brain are mostly asleep. Uh, we also have smaller digestive systems. Again, that's a, a competing energy center in the body. We delay the growth of our body so the brain growth can happen first. And that's why adolescents, and I have a couple of teens in the house, have this <laughs> massive growth spurt in their teen years and get to be physically and sexually mature. We're keeping our body small so we can grow bigger brains and maintain them. Wow. I love that. And I, um, as I was walking through some of the structure, I, you also then share a little bit about one of the chapters I found fascinating. This is your brain on drugs. And then also the chemistry of happiness. I feel like today there's a lot of... I feel like I've heard this, especially more maybe even this year, <clears throat> um, you know, uh, I'll say experts talking about dopamine and endorphins and oxytocin, serotonin. Like, I feel like I, I didn't even know what that was. I mean, a, a year or two ago, I feel like I'm hearing about it all the time. Why is that? Well, I think it's, under, uh, it's important to understand that those aren't uniquely human chemicals. That's the point. So, for example, dopamine, it's the anticipation chemical, right? So it's those three little blinking dots when someone's about to reply to your instant message, right? And you, it's keeping you on the edge of your seat thinking, what are they going to write next, right? Well, that's certainly true, but we share dopamine with fruit flies. I mean, this stuff was useful to <laughs> a lot crazy. of different life forms. So to think crazy. of it as uniquely human is ridiculous. The purpose of dopamine in particular is to basically decide how much energy are we going to expend in pursuit of a goal? Is it worth going after? And if we're way off the mark and we don't get the result we expect, dopamine also adjusts our mental model so it's more accurate next time. So one of the things that you should think about is if you're comfortable doing something, you're not learning. 
If you're not making mistakes, dopamine's not correcting your model of the world. So one of the things I think all entrepreneurs and leaders share is the willingness to take our lumps, to go make a mistake and then go, oh shit, that's not the result I expected. So how does my brain adjust? I love that. Well, um, that's what you call a growth mindset, I guess, or curiosity. Yeah, but that makes me really think about dopamine. that and thinking our audience think, I'm sure. Um, part two, you call it reptiles and shrews. And uh, maybe you can share in a moment why. Um, but uh, we, you jump into some really interesting topics. Um, one of them, uh, uh, the very first chapter in that section of the book is called The Autopilot and the Power of Pain. Help us mm-hmm. with, with what that is and, and how we should be thinking about that. Well, um, you're here and I'm here because our ancestors all survived. And that's a long line of ancestors going back billions of years to the very first viruses which are still with us today, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, sadly. They're they're pretty effective form of life too. Uh, But the the point is you have to live in order to reproduce. So if you don't pay attention to threats to your survival, you're not going to survive. So we're much more sensitized to pain, about a two to one ratio. So if I said, hey, Justin, you know, here's a bowl of your favorite ice cream, but as you reach for it, I'm just going to give you just one whack on the back of your hand with a hammer. What do you think? I'm not touching the ice cream. Damn straight, because (laughs) you have to really be an ice cream fan to go through that, right? So I know that the pain is going to more reliably motivate you, and the pain avoidance is more powerful than pleasure seeking in most situations. And I think one of the mistakes that we make as marketers is not taking advantage of the power of pain. I hear all of these companies saying, well, we're the nice brand. We don't say bad things. We don't compare ourselves to competitors. Or, you know, you should be rubbing salt into the wound. <laughs> so that, you know that workout motto, no pain, no gain? Of course. Well, it's the same in marketing. If you don't create a pain in me first, you're not going to get the gain of me opening my wallet. That's, I love that. And I love how you link together these ideas with like the marketer's perspective. Um, the, another one that jumped out at me was being safer in the herd and so like what are the pluses and minuses of of herd and herd mentality right and thinking about that um talk about how that applies to the consumer and then the marketer yeah so if you think about it um we're again we we went beyond most mammals in terms of how sophisticated our social groups are but a crocodile is better than a zebra. An individual crocodile can eat that zebra. Okay, a zebra needs the herd to defend it, and uh, you know you, you keep watch on the outside of the herd. The strongest members are always in the middle of the herd. They get the mating opportunities, the most food, the most offspring, all the good stuff, right? So herds have the advantage of allowing weaker individuals to form together into collective groups, but they introduce their own disadvantages of how do you maintain order inside the group? So there's always dominance hierarchies and alpha males and females and all of that. So it adds this level of complexity to it. And that's where we developed our emotions and our memories in order to survive in the Heard, we have to be aware of our relationship to the changing power dynamics inside of it. And in order to do that, we need memory. Oh, I love that. Well, as you and as you get going through the book here, you you jump to a whole idea around culture and around the importance of culture and even the building blocks of culture uh, and then social networks. So talk about those and then how they start. And we're building here towards the, you know, kind of the bottom line, your recommendations for for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Well, culture is our, that's our big evolutionary bet. 
Unlike other species that occupy wide ecological ranges, we didn't physically adapt to our environment. We're physically basically all the same, different skin and hair color, sizes, shapes, but generally we're the same. So the big bet we placed was on cultural learning. We're going to get the advantages of learning about our environment from our surrounding tribe, which was generally our relatives and a few dozen people around us. And so we're built to transmit culture. We can learn much more from the cultural package around us than we ever could in a lifetime by recreating it ourselves. And that knowledge gets more and more cumulative. But what it means is that we're kind of self-domesticated cooperative apes and that we're there to spread culture. That means we have to mirror people. We have to spread culture without any changes. You see that in our politics, you know, um, and <laughs> yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, that's come to For life. example, if I said the world is flat and, you know, you, Justin, said, well, I don't know about that. I climbed up on the mast of the ship and I can kind of see a curve on the horizon. So maybe we live on a ball and we throw you off that ship because we need everybody <laughs> saying the world is flat and transmitting that culture efficiently. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think culture, I mean, I'm, I'm a big culture guy. Um, and I believe in, I mean, we could do a whole uh, episode here on the culture of organizations and it. groups. Welcome I mean, to come yeah. back. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. I'm, I'm going to, we'll lock that in now. Um, and we'll come back and talk culture because I think that's especially now challenging for companies and organizations uh, as we have remote employees and people, you know, not in offices. Um, but let's put that over in the parking lot and I'll, we'll, we'll come back to that one on an, another episode. Um, I want to ask you though, the next chapter, actually, and I, I'm not going in, in order on purpose here, but I thought it was interesting because I think these are linked. Um, you talk about the social network and the the bullet that I found interesting was this whole need for belonging and validation. And I, I feel like that is more important in 2020 than ever when it's it's really hard for uh, people, persons, and, and, and just people in general to feel part of something when they're not at something. You know what I mean? They're not part yes. of the collective. Yes. And so, I feel so like there's a, a challenge this a, year. A, you're absolutely right. All mammals have a need for uh, caretaking. So uh, unlike, again, the crocodile, which lays a few eggs and that's its contribution to the <laughs> next generation, you know, we need a lot of caretaking. So bonding to our mothers is the most important thing. And that's where oxytocin comes in, another important chemical. Um, but um, then when we become adults, we transfer that to our cultural group around us. And so it's, it's really important that we have social support. In fact, there was a longitudinal study, a very famous one of Harvard um, enrollees and the guys from South Boston, the poor guys from the other side of town. They've tracked both groups for about 70 years now. And what they found is if you don't have a strong social support network, that's the equivalent medically of being a two-pack-a-day smoker wow. in terms of medical outcomes. Wow. So we're the most social creatures on the planet, and we can't live without social connection. And I think, you know, COVID may go away, and we're still going to be... This is where you, you hear people say, we're going to deal with the ramifications of COVID for a long time. I mean, like, this is an area where I think it's a challenge, right? Um, Absolutely. I mean, in wow. terms of domestic violence, mental illness, my own kids, you know, they're like, say they're teens, <laughs> right. are often dealing with depression oh, because totally. they really need that social it's real. support. It's real. Yeah, it's real. And uh, it's not to be underestimated. No. Take it seriously. No, we had, had a couple podcasts this summer actually talking about the implications of, of COVID from a psychological perspective. And and I don't, I'm sure our listeners, uh, some of them, some of you have 
have had you know tough situations either yourself or with friends and family and it's it is real um and something to be get ahead of um the the last thing i want to jump to on today's episode is you know you really get to a bottom line for the for the reader and for even for our audience and that's how do you take these ideas and bring them to life share you know what would be a couple of those um methods or you know the recommendations that you you serve up here but you'd also serve up to an audience yeah i I would say that uh, i do have a prescriptive chapter at the end uh towards the end how to be more primal and the highlights are get proper sleep. Most people don't understand how foundational sleep <laughs> is. That's so sleep easy, is. right? <laughs> well, it but seems so easy, but every form of life that lives longer than a few days on this planet has some form of sleep. It's not optional. So if you think you can binge watch more Netflix or you know, <laughs> right. scroll through social media, you're really slow motion killing yourself. So sleep is daily life support. Get seven to nine hours, period. End of story. Uh, and then be in your body. Obviously, exercise is is important. Mindfulness is important. Um, having any kind of practice, I think, is critical, whether it's hmm. Tai Chi or yoga or meditation, um, to pull yourself down into kind of more intentional space. Uh, obviously, avoiding addictions, uh, which permanently rewire the brain, whether it's alcohol or other drugs, is really critical. And social support, like we were saying. Uh, But the final thing that was kind of goes along with that culture stuff we're talking about is give it back, pay it back, be a mentor, teach something. If you know something well, teach it. Because our need for prestige is equally important, not just the need for dominance, but actually to help other people. So I think you'll find that being of service to others is a great way to help yourself. I love that. I mean, that's what you're doing. I mean, you've taken your background, your experience and whatnot, put it together here. And I mean, I know you speak at a ton of events. Um, in fact, for those listening that can't see the the actual um, image on Zoom, because we don't do video, we just do audio, um, Tim has has like a thousand <laughs> event badges behind him and uh, yeah that's my wallpapers uh, hundreds it. of event badges i know isn't Correct. it weird not Noted. collecting any right now though i mean it's just weird you know <laughs> yeah how do i get the I'm, ones for all the virtual right <laughs> they don't I've send done. you one of those in the mail <laughs> um this has been so cool and again would love to have you back on to to tackle a couple of these in greater detail but tim share with our audience where they can find you how they can connect with you and, and so forth yeah, easy enough. If you're interested in keynote speaking or um, digital marketing from uh, fixing your ugly baby website by having a ruthless <laughs> review of it to other marketing services, that's all at timash.com. And if you're interested about the the book, um, which is available in ebook and audiobook everywhere, I narrated that one. Um, oh, that's awesome. It's available in Australia, New Zealand right now. In the U.S. publishing, one is going to come out in April, but you can pick up autographed pre-release copies from me on the website. Just go to primalbrain.com. In fact, I'll, I'll do better than that. Justin, if any of your people are listening, have them email me, tim at timash.com. So easy. And I'll send them the sample chapter of their choice. So just go to primalbrain.com and pick a chapter. It's pretty cool. I'll send you a PDF of it. That's awesome. Say tim at timash.com and say, Justin sent me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's great. Well, hey, it's been great meeting you and so great having you on the podcast. And I uh, look forward to having you back on. Right on. It's been my pleasure. The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck and powered by Contender Brands. 
You can download additional ContenderCast episodes directly via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartMedia, YouTube, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the ContenderCast, connect with us at ContenderCast.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender.